This evening, we are bringing the journey through the book of Jonah to a close, and I don't know about you, I hope you've been having a good time. I've been having a good time just learning a whole lot about Jonah. I've also been finding like a lot of encouragement through this book, and also a healthy dose of conviction of my own sin and prejudices and duplicity, and it's been a really fruitful journey for me. And in fact, in this final chapter, we're looking at the, the entirety of chapter four today, I think we're going to see the importance, the emphasis on the character of God. I mean, this book is so much more than fantastic literature. It's more than an amazing story about, you know, a man getting eaten by a giant sea creature and vomited onto the, to the shore. It's more than a morality lesson. It's more than, look at Jonah, look at what not to do. I, this book is truly about God's character on display. And I just want to remind us that this text, the book of Jonah, is, a, is in the Jewish and Christian Bible. It is written for people who claim to have a special relationship with God. People like those of you who claim to follow Jesus or are checking him out. You're here by faith to listen to the word of God. And that means that this book of Jonah is written for us to hear uh, and, and to process. And so as I read this fourth and final chapter, recall that Jonah has been called by God as a prophet. And he's been called to preach a word of warning to the arch enemies of Israel at the time, the Assyrians, and particularly the Assyrians in Nineveh. Um, Jonah refuses, of course, to obey God. He tries to flee in the opposite direction by way of a ship on the sea. So God appoints this storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. A giant sea creature eats him. And is he going to die? No, it actually ends up saving him, vomits him onto a beach, presumably back where he started. And then God says, okay, let's try this again. And he says, okay, I'll go. He goes to Nineveh, uh, one of the most evil and destructive empires of the ancient world. Uh, one in a million chance that they will even repent. And they do. It's amazing. They repent of their evil and their ways. Um, and they even start fasting and they throw themselves at the mercy of a God that they don't even know yet. God sees their repentance. He shows compassion on them by changing his mind about bringing judgment and destruction to their city. And that is where we pick up the story. And here's how it goes. Jonah chapter four. Now all of this greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, please Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. I knew already that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me because death now is better than life. And the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? Well, Jonah doesn't reply. He just went out from the city and he sat east of it. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over him and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But then God appointed a worm 
And when dawn came, the next day it had attacked the plant and it withered. And then the sun came up and God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and he begged with all of his soul saying, death is better for me than life. And God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? I have good reason even unto death, said Jonah. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work for, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't even know the difference between their left hand and their right, as well as many animals? Full stop. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. The fact that Jonah, the rebellious, judgmental, two-faced prophet, the fact that Jonah declares these words about God is absolutely staggering. Jonah is angry at God because he's too compassionate, too slow to anger, too abounding in loving kindness, too willing to hold back judgment on those who Jonah believes deserve it. As we observed last week, Jonah loves it when God is gracious to him, but he can't stand it when God shows that same graciousness to others, especially, and I get it, especially to Israel's arch enemies. The book of Jonah reinforces this overriding description of God's character that is consistent from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that he is a God who's creative and good, humble and compassionate. He's a God who goes out of his way to meet people where they are, even so much so to send a prophet to Nineveh when they weren't even looking for one. But since this book is in the Bible, and since the Bible is God's word to his people who he has a special relationship with, people like you and me, I want to focus now on God's character and how that character is revealed in his interactions with Jonah. Okay. Uh, Note, first of all, that God doesn't have to engage with Jonah at all. You ever think about that? He doesn't even have to engage with Jonah at all. And what I mean is that, is that God called him to do what prophets are supposed to do, to proclaim God's word to people. When Jonah refuses and runs away from God, you know, God would be well within his rights to just let him go or to just like be like, I'm not putting up with this. I'm going to zap you. I mean, Stranger things have happened. Like God did not have to engage with Jonah. He could have ended his career as a prophet, but instead God pursues Jonah. And when you start to consider the other biblical stories, we see this character trait of God, his unfailing love, his pursuit of people. That is the norm, not the exception. When Adam and Eve 
rebel in the Garden of Eden, God graciously clothes them and provides for them and creates a family for them. When he sees the darkening of Cain's heart toward his brother Abel, God takes the time to seek him out and say, hey, Cain, what's going on? You know, if you don't get a hold on this sin thing that's pursuing you, it's going to take over your life. And even when Cain doesn't listen to God and he murders his brother, God puts a mark of protection on him so that he has a lifeline. When humans repeat and escalate their rebellion against God, he graciously chooses Abram and begins to a rescue plan to redeem the entire world. And then Abraham loses faith, nearly loses his wife to a foreign king, and God doesn't give up. He doesn't start over. He pursues Abraham and blesses him despite his bad behavior. And and we see this same dogged grace and compassion from God extended to Isaac and Jacob and Judah and Joseph and Ruth and Rahab and David and Solomon. And it's no wonder that over the years, God has developed the nickname among those who follow him as the hound of heaven. He is the God who pursues us. God who loves us enough to engage us where we are. Consider that nearly 2,000 years ago, so bad was the human situation that God himself became flesh and was born in Bethlehem to dwell among humans personally as Jesus the Christ. That's love and compassion. I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. Um, Let's dig back into the story of Jonah and observe some of the ways that, you know, he pursues a special relationship with Jonah by engaging him. And in particular, I'm going to point out four points of engagement that God makes with Jonah. Okay, so the first one is that God engages Jonah through the creation. He engages Jonah through the creation. You know, Jonah, the entire book, all four chapters, if you combine them, it's only 58 verses. And in those 58 verses, there are five instances where God engages with Jonah through the created order. So think about when Jonah runs from God initially, he sends a great wind, a great storm onto the sea. And even though Jonah ignores that storm as long as he can, the pagan crew of the ship are attuned enough to perceive that there was something something extraordinary about this storm. It was some sort of divine intervention. Uh, rather than repenting and surrendering to God, Jonah again tries to end his life. He just says, throw me overboard, which the crew reluctantly does. They throw him overboard into the storming sea, and then God sends another act of creation, a giant sea creature to come and to swallow Jonah, right? It's in the belly of this sea creature that Jonah begins to acknowledge once again, sort of, the goodness of God. But then, later in the story, Jonah turns to anger yet again in the fourth chapter. God speaks through creation by appointing a plant to cover him with shade. Then he appoints a worm to take that shade away to make a a point. And then he appoints a, 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 a strong, hot, easterly wind to make Jonah just uncomfortable enough to engage with God. To engage with God. It's amazing how sobering the forces of nature can be. You can be having the worst day, uh, replaying some frustrating conversation you had at home or with someone else or a bad day at work, and then you might come across 
a sunset or catch the light on the mountains a certain way or see the sea and it melts right through your pity party. And it's like, oh my gosh, it puts everything sort of into perspective. Or, you know, there's, there's nothing like a little bit of fear and raw power of nature to remind us of what's truly important in life. You can be arguing about what music is on in the car, and then all of a sudden, a gust of wind catches your car, especially if you drive a boxy pilot like I do, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh, and that adrenaline and that sweat that comes on, you're like, maybe it doesn't matter that they wanted that song, like... It, or you, you hit a, a puddle of standing water. You know how that sobers you up instantly when you hydroplane even just a few inches. You're like, oh, I'm much more attuned. And suddenly it doesn't matter that the kids are arguing in the back of the car. The nature and the power of it just sort of catches your attention and sobers you up. Sometimes when you're complacent and you're not thinking about God at all, when you think that, you know, I'm secure in my own accomplishments and my own resources, it only takes a flood or a fire or an illness, some other kind of force of nature to remind us of just how temporary we are, just how weak we are, just how dependent we are on God and other people. God knows his child Jonah is having a hard time. He knows this. And rather than letting him sink into a pit of his own anger and his own self-righteousness, the Lord is compassionate. And he employs creation to help Jonah come to his senses. Has God's creation ever gotten your attention? Is there a time that you can remember being so overcome with beauty or sobered by just the terrifying power of, of, of creation and the nature, uh, the natural world, humbled by nature? How might God be engaging you in those moments through the creation? The second way that I see God engaging Jonah in this story is through conversation, through thoughtful questions. You know, we've all been on the receiving end of an uninvited lecture. Kids in the room, if you're having a hard time with your parents, does it ever work when they just lecture you? It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't ever work. It just drives a deeper wedge. And you know, the thing is, by the very fact that God is God, he doesn't have to explain anything to us. He doesn't have to explain anything to Jonah. He doesn't have to convince us that he's right. He doesn't have to care about us at all. He doesn't have to. In fact, in most religions in the world, and definitely the religions in the ancient world, people didn't believe gods or goddesses cared about them at all, right? Like most pagan gods and goddesses were selfish, and petty, and demanding, and vain, and in the ancient reckoning, humans only existed to serve the gods and goddesses, not to love them, and certainly not to be loved by them. But the God of the scriptures, Yahweh, reveals himself utterly differently. He's a God who repeatedly expresses love and a wide range of emotion in his interactions with human beings. God could have just given up on Jonah and kept searching for someone more obedient to partner with in his mission. But instead, out of his love and compassion, 
God pursues Jonah and engages him, not with lectures and threats, but with thoughtful questions. Jonah, do you have a right to be angry? Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Biblical scholar James Bruckner writes, have you any right to be angry? This question is the most important in the book of Jonah. Yahweh wants to know if Jonah's anger results in any good. This is a moral question, more than a legal question, end quote. Asking questions rather than giving lectures, God is helping Jonah to engage with him, to have a conversation, to open up himself and to reveal his thoughts and feelings. It's so great, right? God doesn't expect us to have the right thoughts and feelings. Pay attention to that. Jonah's nuts. He's like incensed with anger. Uh, (laughs) Let's not pick on Jonah. We've all been there. Maybe when we were two. No, but seriously. um, God doesn't expect us to have the right thoughts and feelings all the time. But what he wants is what what all good relationships are made of. And that is honest engagement. And when you're talking to someone you really care about, you don't just want them to say back to you what you want to hear. You care enough to know what they really think and what they really feel. That's what good relationships are made out of. And that's what God is inviting Jonah into. He doesn't want a sanitized answer. He doesn't want the right Sunday school answer. He just asks an open-ended question. And that's real. It's no surprise then that when we meet God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, we note that he asked a lot of questions and he spoke in lots of parables that require a two-way street of engagement. That's good relating to us. That's actually a sign of compassion and graciousness on God's end. The third way I see God engaging with Jonah is subtle. And it's often overlooked, but there's good case to be made that God uses humor to engage with Jonah. Near the end of the story, after God has let Jonah have his tantrum about his deep grief over the plant and how it brought him shade and then died, he basically says, Jonah, you're so upset about this plant. You didn't even grow. You didn't even know the plant personally. Don't you see? I've got humans in Nineveh. Plus, even their cows repented. I mean, everybody knows that cows don't repent. And you can almost imagine God looking at Jonah all red in the face and turning mad and be like, come on, have a heart, Jonah. Ha, even their animals are repenting up in there in Nineveh, right? It's like, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And I, I know there have been so many times that a little well-meaning, has to be timely, uh, a little well-meaning humor in a heated situation has a way of softening defenses and sort of like taking the venom out of things. Um, I don't always recommend that, uh, especially in marital heatedness. <laughs> Sometimes I think I'm being funny. But God can do it. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, <laughs> so I'll just leave that one there. Um, <laughs> but the fourth method of engagement that God employs to relate to Jonah is through, through logic, right? Uh, like Jonah storms off. He doesn't want to talk to God. 
And he sets up this little shelter. By the way, the Hebrew word is the same one used for Sukkoth. It's the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So, so Jonah creates this little booth, which is super sketch, probably just out of the sticks and stuff that he's got, which is why it's not a good enough shelter. Even if it was a perfect shelter, um, imagine yourself being like, if any of you have a backyard shed, I have a shed in the, it's like a Rubbermaid plastic shed, and it's a shelter technically, it provides shade. If you go in there in a hot Middle Eastern day, it's going to be like 120 degrees even with the door open, right? So how do you, how do you shade that? You might put an umbrella up over it to take that initial. So, this is, so Jonah's in this, he's in this shelter. Um, and the sun is beating down on him, and it is extremely uncomfortable. Now, how is God going to help the sulking prophet see the bigger picture? Maybe a little logic lesson, right? So God creates this plant, probably, I don't know, the scholars, think it's, it's an ambiguous plant name. Like, we don't know which plant it was. A lot of scholars think it's a castor oil plant, which sort of have, if you should look it up, it like has leaves that sort of look like pot leaves, but they're bigger. And, um, and it's sort of like, yeah, so like almost the size of pumpkin leaves, so like, like this big, and it's a sort of a vine. And you can imagine it providing some shade and it can grow kind of fast, especially when God grows it because he's God and so he can make it grow really fast. Anyway, the point is that he creates this plant, provides some shade over Jonah. Um, and the verse, in verse six, it says that Jonah was extremely happy. It was like the happiest we've seen Jonah in this whole dang story. He's so happy about this plant. It's like Tove Tove or something. It's like this double good, good. It's like, okay, Jonah, that's nice. Um, now what's interesting is that this phrase in the Hebrew says that the plant grew up over his head, literally, so it was to deliver him from calamity or destruction. Just like God had delivered the Ninevites from their calamity, it's the same sentence. It's so crazy, okay. So God appoints this worm then that attacked the vine and it shriveled up, which totally ticked Jonah off. And what is the point? Well, the point is that if Jonah is so extremely happy about this plant, like he's emotionally engaged with this plant, right? Uh, He's emotionally engaged with a thing that he didn't even make. How much more then should God be attached and be compassionate toward not just one human being, but 120,000 people made in his image? 120,000 people who had repented of their evil ways. 120,000 people who God says doesn't know their their right hand from their left. And that means not that they're innocent, because if they were innocent, they wouldn't have repented of their evil. Like they knew enough to know that they needed to repent of their evil. In fact, all cultures have a basic morality that seems to be more of a natural law than a religious law. But what that phrase means, not knowing your right hand from your left, is that they don't know how to overcome evil. They don't know God. They are helpless to engage in lasting change without God. They are 120,000 people who don't know God like Jonah knows God. How much more then should God have compassion on them? Comparison to the heartfelt grief 
that Jonah feels for a plant. Right? That's the logic of God in that sentence. The difference is that Jonah loved the plant for what it could do for him, provide shade. Jonah values the utility of the plant. He doesn't actually value the plant for what it is. Whereas God loves, um, uh, not for what plants or people or animals give him. After all, God doesn't need anything. That's part of what makes him God. God loves his creation because he created it. He loves us and sees in us intrinsic value. It means you have value to God without even considering what you could do for him or not do for him, without considering how good you are toward him or how rebellious you are toward him. You have intrinsic value because God created you and loves you. That's awesome. The final question about whether or not God should have compassion on the Ninevites is really a question to every single reader, including us. It's an engagement, an invitation to consider if God so loves the world that he gave his only son to save it, gave himself to save it, shouldn't I also have compassion on other people? As we come to the close of the book of Jonah, it's not lost on me in this preaching moment that it is Christ the King Sunday. And I am so thankful that God is a king who is compassionate and kind and patient and loving. He's engaging. Jesus takes these themes we see in Jonah and he embodies them in his life in his sacrificial death, in his forgiveness of our sin, and in his continued presence with us. We've done a deep dive into the book of Jonah, eight Sundays on 58 verses. Good for you for sticking with it. But let's not forget the good news that this book exists to engage us, to communicate God's love to us, And I think that's reason to rejoice that God is pursuing us, engaging us, loving us, and nowhere do we see that as perfectly as in Jesus. With that, I want to invite us to a season of healing prayer. Lori Louise and I will be at these kneeling benches. And this is a great way for us to encounter Jesus to come to him if you have physical, spiritual, or emotional needs of healing or desires to get closer to God. Um, The Wilsons are going to come and play some music in the background, and you can come forward for prayer or pray where you're sitting. And I just want to offer this this time for you um, to reflect on the God who engages us and pursues us. How might he be pursuing you in this moment?